Hi everyone, and welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is April 11th, 2017. We are always discussing here on Tokyo on Fire business issues and diplomacy between Japan and the United States, between Japan and other neighboring countries, and trying to figure out what are the issues that are of economic importance to us doing business here. We're gonna talk about a lot of these issues that are really emerging very forcefully now. I'm joined with my regular guest, Dr. Nancy Snow. Dr. Nancy Snow, welcome. Thank you, Tim. And Glenn Fukushima joins us once again. Glenn, thank you for coming. Great to be here, thank you. There's an awful lot going on that we can discuss. Members of the cabinet traveling to Tokyo, uh, North Korea exploding, hopefully not, but it's big in the news, what's going on in Syria too. Glenn, what's going on in your world that's related to the Japan-U.S. relationship? Well, in U.S.-Japan, as you say, Secretary of State Tillerson was visiting Japan a few weeks ago, and then uh, Vice President Pence will be visiting Japan next week. And um, uh, Prime Minister Abe was there, you know, in Washington on February 10th. But uh, there's a lot uh, kind of follow-up from mm -hmm. that uh, summit meeting. Uh, the Vice President will meet with uh, Deputy Prime Minister Aso on this uh, bilateral uh, economic dialogue. In about so, two weeks. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. about a little more than a week, right. And the big news is, finally, Bill Haggerty has received uh, an appointment as a nominee for the ambassador to Tokyo. Right, so he's been officially nominated uh, by the Trump administration, and so now the um, Senate confirmation uh, meetings, the hearings have to be held. Um, but I think, you know, based on the past record of ambassadors coming to Japan, uh, I think the earliest was April when um, Tom Schieffer came in the uh, second uh, Bush administration, and the latest was Tom Foley at the end of November in the second Clinton administration. So sometime between April and November, I think right. we'll see the new ambassador arrive. Yes, I've recently heard that uh, probably the, um, the confirmation hearings will be a little bit accelerated, and he mm. could be here as early as uh, July. I see. Well, that'd be good. That would be great, because right. actually the, the embassy here and probably the entire diplomatic community, is in a bit of a hiatus. I mean, they can't really, they're not getting the directions from above. Mm -hmm. uh, they're in place. Mm -hmm. uh, Jason Highland is acting ambassador. He's right. the deputy, what? Chief what, of mission. Deputy yep. chief of mission. Right. And um, so I think people are just waiting for this this machinery to go, but it seems to be very top-heavy, yeah, isn't Yeah, I think it? one of the things uh, is that it's been pointed out in Washington that um, the appointment process, nomination process, has been very slow in this administration, slower than most. I think most administrations, by around March or April, the Deputy Secretary, Undersecretary, and Assistant Secretary positions are at least nominated, and many of them have been confirmed. But at this point, the State Department, I think other than the Secretary and Nikki Haley as uh, Ambassador to the United Nations, right. there's no deputy in place, there's no Undersecretary, so it's taking some time. Well, wasn't William Haggerty one of the key features of, of the appointment process in identifying those people to fill some of these appointments? He was on the transition team. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I had heard that one of the reasons why he was identified as a potential ambassador mm. was because of his involvement in that particular uh, aspect of parceling out the I see. The, the largest I'm, of I'm the election I, I, campaign. I, I do know that uh, he was in Japan from, I think, 89 to 92 with the Boston Consulting Group. Mm -hmm. And I remember Long time ago. meeting with right. him soon after I arrived in Japan and when I was uh, working with the chamber. Um, so I do remember him... Uh, from that period, but um, but I think it's partly based on the experience he had for three years in Japan, also being head of the uh, economic development office in Tennessee, in Tennessee right. and he dealt a lot with Japanese companies, apparently, in that right. capacity. So I think one of the most important features of a uh, ambassador 
in any country, but particularly for, for us here in Japan, mm -hmm. is their relationship with the president. How close are they? What kind of communications vehicle are they sure. comfortable in using? Right. And I don't know what the relationship is between Bill Hagerty mm -hmm. and uh, the president. Do you have any insight I, on that? I don't know. I've just read that uh, he um, uh, had worked on the uh, Romney campaign in mm -hmm. 2012. And also in this 2016 election campaign, he uh, actually was working on the Jeb Bush campaign. And then when Jeb Bush uh, stepped down, then he switched over to the Trump uh, group. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and he's apparently played a key role on the transition team. One of the features of the current administration that um, a lot of people are pointing out is that it's, number one, it's, it's not really getting integrated very quickly, but also that there's a lot of power that's invested in the top the top players. Mm -hmm. And for example, the vice president will be coming to Tokyo mm -hmm. in, in less than two weeks. Right. Defense secretary was here mm -hmm. uh, yes. four weeks ago, and then right. that was followed up by uh, the secretary of state. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of action here in Japan, but it seems mm -hmm. to be very top heavy. Yeah, that's true. I think mean, partly it's that the confirmation process has taken a lot of time. Also, this particular administration seems to be putting a lot of people in the White House, a lot of people in the White House. And so there are many positions there that weren't there before. This National Trade Council that um, Peter Navarro is heading. There's a special advisor for deregulation that Carl Icahn is heading. There, there's lots of positions that are being created in the White House. And mm -hmm. one of the things that you know in the White House is that this, it doesn't require Senate confirmation. So the president can pretty much appoint who he or she, you know, uh, who uh, he, he'd like to have in, mm -hmm. on, on the White House staff. So, uh, so at this point, I think, as you say, uh, it is very top heavy. I assume that by sometime, you know, by fall, end of this year, that those positions will be filled uh, down to the assistant secretary level. Right. Even now, we can see the jockeying for positions, mm -hmm. the jockeying for influence. I mean, mm -hmm. sure. uh, yep. Steve Bannon has apparently has been moved over, not demoted, but um, some He's could say. He's been taken off the permanent, uh, st uh, the National Security Council. Yes, but that's because team. that's what I wanted. <laughs> I mean, you, you just that's never know. That's a demotion. Know. <laughs> yes. It is a demotion. Right. And not only that, but you see Trump uh, giving Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, these positions. Now they're officially government mm -hmm. uh, employees. And before they were family members whom he trusted very closely, and he's talked about this in, in his books regularly. Right. So it doesn't surprise us, does it, that the without the Senate confirmation that you can just mm -hmm. keep adding people, because that's what Trump wants, is I think he wants people on a short leash there. And, and the State Department, I can tell you, having worked there, uh, the morale is really terrible and you're not hearing from people because they really don't know what the country plans are because right. so few people are in place, as Glenn says. Well, how much the, was it, the budget cut? The 29% proposed. Proposed. Budget proposed. We'll see, <laughs> but it is uh, They may not get that much. <laughs> but that just but, shows you how much love he's devoting to that, that particular part of running the government. How much love, right. Right. <laughs> it's, it's really, too, I think the corporatization of foreign policy. So public diplomacy, mm -hmm. which was part of the State Department umbrella, has been discussed in the New York Times, Washington Post. It's gotten attention mm -hmm. for its lack of priority in this administration because mm -hmm. Tillerson, when he came to Japan or when he uh, had his first, uh, I guess it was during the trip to Japan, mm -hmm. he had one reporter right. from a right. conservative right. journal right. with That's him. Right. Yep. So in public diplomacy, it's always about your relationship 
with the public, diplomacy mm -hmm. to the public. And you need the media there to help shape the narrative. So we still don't know what the narrative is. Right. What is the story of America to the world? Well, I think the the worlds that are represented by what Barack Obama represented and what current president represents are so far apart. And not only that, but there's a, a bit of a lingering war that's going on. So it looks like everybody has to get used to this this new game in town. And some of it doesn't rely on getting the word out through the standard press. I mean, obviously, the, the press is being denigrated all the time by these, this administration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, and it is very troubling because I think going forward, if we do get that kind of a cut at the State Department, it is going to damage America's role in the world. Uh, Trump has been a puzzle to me from day in and day out. When he was a candidate, he was talking about being so non-interventionist, mm -hmm. and he said <laughs> Hillary Clinton would be the first to take us into war. She was the warmonger. He was very critical of Obama with his red line comment back in 2013. He said, if you go in, if you intervene in Syria, it's going to be a big mess. He was tweeting about that mm -hmm. then when he didn't have all the followers he does now. And wow. now we have this turnabout. But the conspiratory uh, or the conspiracy story could be that with the strike on Syria, that that shifted the focus away from how close the Trump administration was to Putin and Russia uh, during the campaign and even after. Remember all the talk about Russian hacking, that went away. And now you have Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, even being supportive mm -hmm. of the Syria strikes. So now he's flexing his muscles. Russia is upset with the U.S. Uh, meanwhile, a lot of allies around the world have been supportive, and even the American people, six out of ten, are in support of these initial strikes. Right. What we don't know is what's next. Right, right. Well, it's a, it's a new game. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are also noting that Rex Tillerson seems to be growing into this role, this global role that he has, and it's a new, it's a new gig for him. Um, let's see if he becomes a little bit more um, vocal in what the pronouncements are of U.S. foreign policy, because we really haven't heard much on that at all. Well, remember, Glenn, when he was Tillerson was saying he wanted a more, Rex Tillerson wanted a more efficient State Department, and he's certainly running a very efficient, <laughs> streamlined approach. You wonder what it was like when he was CEO of ExxonMobil. Was mm -hmm. it the same thing? He's not used to having to give directives to this large bureaucracy. But the diplomats, the seasoned diplomats there, they're, they're being really sort of ignored with all the experience, all of the know-how, all of the sort of uh, uh, frame of the game on the ground. Yeah, we that don't they know that, have. though. I mean, like, like Glenn said, you know, the, the top, the medium top and the top has, have not been, you know, put into place. So... They're kind of waiting for directions, too. And but even, will even, he listen to that? And even That's at the top level, like uh, Bob Lighthizer, the uh, U.S. Trade Representative, his confirmation hearings have been held, but he hasn't yet been formally confirmed. And so, you know, a lot of the press speculation has been that Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary, is going to be playing a very lead role on trade issues. Mm -hmm. But Lighthizer is not going to be, be a shrieking violet. So, I mean, you know, to see the role that Lighthizer at USTR plays, that, that um, Wilbur Ross at Commerce plays, that Tillerson Estate, uh, this is all 
uh, we're going to have to watch to see how this all plays out. Mm-hmm. We didn't know when the president was campaigning or actually when he got elected what role Japan would play in the dynamics of the, the U.S. global position. Mm-hmm. But it looks like it's taking a pole position, and probably some of that is due to the prime minister visiting the United States so quickly, mm-hmm. and also maybe some of the pronouncements that he made, maybe some of the things that happened on the golf course. Mm-hmm. But it looks like that relationship is beginning to gel a little bit. Mm-hmm. The, no. uh, uh, the well, I think it's true. Here you know, as you say, um, during the campaign and also during the last 30-some years, Donald Trump has been writing and saying things about Japan that are pretty critical. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, they steal our jobs, they only export, they don't import, they're manipulating their currency, and they're free riders on defense. So I think a lot of people in Japan and around the world were thinking, well, Donald Trump is going to change all of that with Japan. But on the security side, at least, it looks like everything's the same. Right. Uh, the Senkaku Islands are still under Article Five of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. And uh, the only thing it appears that might change uh, is on the economic side, where uh, President Trump said in the joint press conference with Prime Minister Abe on the 10th of February, he said, from now on, between the U.S. and Japan, uh, the economic relationship is going to be free, fair, and reciprocal. Mm. And I think the emphasis was on reciprocal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that, uh, at least in Trump's mind, uh, I think he wants to see some uh, rectification, in his view, of the imbalance of the benefits going so much to Japan. Right. So on the economic side, I think once the team gets into place, that there will be some changes. But on the security side, I think things are pretty much the same. It looks like it's actually being exercised as... Uh as the situation in North Korea begins to heat up, too. Yeah, well, that'll be interesting to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's happening right now. I mean, the yes. USS Carl Vinson is now yes, steaming towards right. the yep. uh, South Japan Sea. So, you know, the the, uh, the serious, the missiles, the 59 Tomahawk missiles, it's really interesting to kind of, you know, try to analyze what what was the motivation and what was the intended aim of this, you know. And you can make the argument that this was a signal to, obviously, to Syria, and to say that unlike Barack Obama, when there's mm-hmm. a red line, we're going to act on it when they use chemical weapons. That's, you know, message to Syria, message to the United States, and a message to Russia, as you say, mm-hmm. a message to North Korea, a message to China. So it's interesting that it's kind of a multi-purpose uh, <laughs> right. uh, action. And, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how the message is received by each of these uh, parties. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you keep doing what works for you, and that one seems to have worked in some ways. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I mean, if it's going to be a backfire, we don't know if it's a backfire yet. But maybe that is one of the signature moves of the Trump administration. We're just seeing the first signs of it. Yeah, it'd be interesting because, you know, with regard to North Korea, there's one view which says, well, if, you know, Trump shows the use of force, that will get the North Koreans to be more um, accommodating to having negotiations. On the other hand, there's some who say, well, it's Precisely because uh, Trump made that kind of a strike that the North Koreans will think that's why we have to have nuclear weapons. Uh-huh. That's why we have to have missiles to prevent that from happening to us, like in the case of Libya. So, yeah, it's interesting to see what, what the intended message is and what the received message is mm-hmm. in each, with each of these parties. Right. The vice president will be visiting in less than two weeks. And we also learn that the president might be passing through towards the fall. Yeah, I think both, uh, I think Prime Minister Abe has invited the president to visit, and I think he's accepted for some time in the fall. And also Xi Jinping, in the meeting right. he had with the president, also invited, and, and apparently the Trump has accepted that. So I don't know whether they're going to be on the same trip or separate trips, and people obviously will be watching which one does he go to, go to first. Right. <laughs> yep.
You know, with the Xi Jinping visit over the weekend, it really coincided with the strike on Syria. So even though the rhetoric was very positive coming out of it, you have to mm. wonder if Xi felt sort of like, ah, I didn't get my day in the sun. Second he, fiddle here. Yeah, I mean, this is China again. So the expectation was probably that the rhetoric was not going to be uh, that strong and positive between them. But they, he had to come out and say that China at least had a very nuanced, uh, positive response to the strike on Syria, didn't right. it? So right. it was while he was visiting Mar-a-Lago again, here we go, all the diplomacy taking place there in South Florida. So uh, what's going to happen to the U.S.-China relationship? And then Abe immediately gave his support to the strike. And Abe, he's got this delicate dance with Putin in Russia. So mm -hmm. the, the, the pivot has been with the U.S. away from Russia and Putin and with stronger, harsher rhetoric coming out of Russia. And now with this pivot to China. And uh, it, it really is putting a great uh, uh, a greater spotlight on Asia, Northeast Asia in particular. Mm. Uh, and, and I wonder now with Seoul and Korea, with all of the turmoil they've had with Park and just the drama there, how they must be feeling with this military strike, their worry about they must, North Korea. They're a hell of a lot more worried than Japan is, that's for sure. I know, sure. I know it. Because Seoul can be hit with just artillery barrages, right? I mean, if, right. They, if they get hit, and in fact, they can see when it's coming in too, so they have a little bit of warning, and it would be awful hard to protect Seoul in that sort of a situation. But, but as Nancy says, with the election coming up in South Korea, and Mr. Moon becomes the president, as the public opinion polls show, then... He is someone who is known to have a much uh, softer line towards North Korea and also towards China. So that could be a, a new element mm. in, the, in the mix as well. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think the, the real target for the Syria action was North Korea. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And it happened when the Chinese premier was in town with the president. And, you know, that signal would be very strong. We, we will take action and we're not afraid to spend a couple of million dollars on these, these cruise missiles. I mean, they're so expensive in the... And the amount of damage that they um, had was kind of minimal in, in terms of what the cost benefit was. Right. So it was a signal. But you, I think at the beginning of the administration, it was so rocky for mm -hmm. Trump, wasn't it? And then with Abe's visit, that went well and it did spotlight Japan. But now, all of a sudden, there's great fear about more military strikes. Mm -hmm. The U.S. really flexing its muscle, becoming the world's Policeman, again, this was not Trump's promise when right. he was running for office. If right. anything, he said, I don't want to be the global leader. I want to take care of America first. Right. That was the whole approach. Can, can you comment on that, Glenn? The, the, uh, the military role in the Trump administration seems like it's begun to, to reach some sort of a, a prominence. And, uh, well, but it's, it's, it's almost people. kind of um, inevitable in the sense that I think that the two he, the, kind, the two kinds of people that Trump seems to trust and uh, has hired for senior positions are wealthy business people and ex-military people. Mm -hmm. So for the first time in many, many years, you have a uh, military person who is uh, Secretary of Defense. You have a military person who's head of National Security Council. You have a military person who's head of Homeland Security. And in a sense, I think with kind of a vacuum that we see on the political side, with so few positions and senior positions being occupied in the State Department and other places, that actually the military actually is in place because you know, the military is very you know, professional 
and they mm -hmm. have the continuity and stability. Uh, and there's much more organizational continuity in the military. So I think in many ways, the military right now is in a position of being able to um, provide the kind of um, advice, recommendations, you know, options and so forth, which I think the political side really may not be able to because there aren't people at the deputy and undersecretary and assistant secretary level. So mm -hmm. the balance of, of uh, influence right now may actually be in favor of the, of the military people, I think. Didn't Trump visit the Pentagon, though? I mean, in one of his first two visits. He went to the CIA. I don't know that he went to the Pentagon, but he did go to the CIA, okay. sure. Right. But clearly the, the military role is... Uh, prominent in the uh, Trump administration currently. Well, and, and the, the, but the budget too. I mean, he says you know, we're going to increase the budget, the military budget by 10%, mm -hmm. but cut the, the State Department 29%. So that mm -hmm. alone shows, you know, the, the emphasis. Uh, but although I think most of the thought was that that was going to be focused on uh, kind of the anti-terrorism um, uh, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed, and so being more of a defensive kind of a uh, effort as opposed to, you know, aggressively going out on the offensive. But mm -hmm. as Nancy says, Contrary to what he said during the campaign, he seems to be uh, taking, you know, offensive measures. Whatever works, it seems. You have to keep watching these kinds of issues because it pretends what's going to be happening in the near term and in the medium term. We're going to continue to watch this and report this to you. Please stay tuned. Welcome back. It is April 11th, 2017. With all of the turmoil that's going on geopolitically and geofinancially, the U.S.-Japan relationship is by far one of the most important, especially if you're sitting here in Japan. Glenn Fukushima, Dr. Nancy Snow joined me today. I'd like to get into a little bit about how the Japanese are feeling in this kind of vice grip as the North Korea situation begins to evolve in a not very good way. And as the Syria example shows that the United States is willing to project a military might when its feelings are ruffled. So I think there's kind of a mixed view in Japan in the sense that on the one hand, there was some dissatisfaction in Japan about the perception that Obama was not as forceful or as, or as uh, decisive uh, as he could have been on uh, foreign policy issues, including mm -hmm. especially the red line with Syria. So on the one hand, I think there's some um, uh, relief that the president now is someone who is decisive, who takes action, and who wants to kind of uh, project strength. So on that front, right. I think they're, they're happy. On the other hand, they are concerned in Japan that um, if the United States were to take action without sufficiently consulting with Japan, especially with regard to North Korea, no. because clearly, clearly anything the U.S. does with North Korea that has any military significance could have very significant um, uh, repercussions for South Korea and for Japan. So well, I think it's kind of in between, you know. Sure. Even when the relationship is good, though, I mean, the yep. United States has a, a, a bad tendency to kind of do things, you know, cowboy style. Yeah, right. Well, the, we ahead, remember in 2003, I'm just reflecting on when we had Prime Minister Koizumi, and he accepted the rationale from the George W. Bush administration of these weapons of mass destruction, mm -hmm. which sure. of course led to the preemptive strike. In this case, it was the use of chemical weapons that led to a strike, and they killed many children, many children and, and families. And... But in the end, of course, we found out later there weren't the weapons of mass destruction. So it looked as if Koizumi was again. putting all his trust right. in the Bush administration. So you wonder how this will play out differently. And I think the concern is that 
is Japan going to get played again? Mm -hmm. It always seems to have to defer to the U.S. position, but that's very precarious now right. because of who is the president and, what, and also what the stakes are. What the stakes are and what role the United States will play. We've already talked about how the emphasis is on CEO corporate level, mm -hmm. big donors, uh, again, who were criticized during the campaign as, as too influential on the, on the opponent's side, and then the military. And the military is clearly going to take not only the uh, hardline approach with the strike in Syria, but also is going to be f um, have the public diplomacy funding. So the military is going to shape Mm -hmm. the, the narrative of the United States in the world, the, both the U.S. economic right. sector and the U.S. military. So that's going to really play out differently here. And Japan, where is Japan's strength? Not so much. I mean, it's still a very strong military, but it's not seen as this offensive military in the world. It defers to the U.S., so its strength is still economic. So mm -hmm. that would suggest that U.S.-Japan relations economically will be the emphasis here. What's going to happen, though, to the changing security apparatus? You would hope that the U.S.-Japan relationship is founded predominantly on the economic role, but we've got the vice president that will be visiting in two weeks, in less than two weeks now, and it looks like the ability for them to prepare for that level of a, a, a summit, it's not really a summit, it's an economic uh, forum, um, seems to be lacking on the U.S. side, whereas the Japanese, they didn't go through an election. Their bureaucracy has been pretty much standard. They're career bu uh, bureaucrats, and they've got the papers and the briefings, um, you know, down pat. You know, it's very interesting. I was giving a talk yesterday to a group in Japan, and they were just really surprised and, and, and really puzzled. They said, 4,000 new people come into the U.S. government or the change of administrations. Yeah. So we, we can't imagine something like that happening in Japan because it's true. In 1993, when Hosokawa became the first non-LDP prime minister in 38 years, in uh, 2009, when Hato became the, uh, L, uh, the Democratic Party of Japan prime minister, on those two occasions, no, the bureaucracy didn't, didn't change at all. Mm -hmm. you know? And so to have these you know, 4,000 new people come in is just a complete changeover of uh, senior people is, is, uh, is, is, I mean, the U.S. and Japan are so uh, different. Mm -hmm. And I think the European other countries are kind of in between, somewhere in between. But getting back to this, um, the fact that the Japanese side is very well prepared, um, the, Jap the U.S. side, I think, doesn't have the people yet to be able to respond in a very um, detailed way to Japanese proposals. Um, but, uh, so one thing is the economic relationship. Uh, which I think will undergo some change between the U.S. and Japan. The security relationship to this point has not been changed that much. But one of the things I think that in addition to the relationship between North Korea and the United States that Japan is obviously concerned about is obviously the relationship between China and the United States in the aftermath of the Xi Jinping visit to Mar-a-Lago because here again you have a situation where Japan does not want the United States and China to get so friendly as to create a G2 mm -hmm. that will kind of exclude Japan and kind of rule the world. On the other hand, they don't want to see open conflict between the United States and China because Japan may be in a position of having to choose between the two. And once choosing, it'll piss off the other side. Right. So, right. so you know, it's both with regard to North Korea and with China, uh, the Japan is watching this very closely. Right. They're trying to avoid that linkage where the United States and the China relationship rising in ascendancy 
diminishes the U.S.-Japan sure, relationship. Absolutely. And yeah. I, that, I that, can see that. That's why they were so concerned when Tillerson went to Beijing that some of the wording he used echoed the wording that the Chinese had used right. about you know, great power relations. And so some people in Japan, along with some people in Washington, were concerned that uh, Secretary of State, either because of inexperience or because he wasn't sufficiently briefed or maybe because he believes it, thought that these words that the Chinese had used in the past should be repeated back to the Chinese. But he got a lot of criticism for that. So more recently, he he's, hasn't used those same words. Mm -hmm. but, but each you know, word is being watched very carefully. Right. When uh, the Clinton administration started, they too were really unprepared for a long period of time, maybe six or eight months. For example, the, the trade discussions really mm. started to take on a kind of nuanced tone. Mm. But before that, I mean, there were lots of mistakes that were made and a mm. lot of bluster and, and Well, I remember you know, 93, 92 campaign, it's the economy stupid was the mm -hmm. theme of the campaign. And so there's a lot of talk about Japan and China and other countries. But after Clinton became president, I remember you know, we were members of the American Chamber. We've, we hosted uh, Clinton, President Clinton when he was here for the Tokyo summit in July of 93. Right. And it was that, that right after that summit meeting that Prime, uh, President uh, Clinton and then Prime Minister Miyazawa had sushi in the Hotel Okura and decided to agree on the framework talks. Mm -hmm. And that's what began two years of rather contentious trade negotiations. Right. So kind of a lot is in the air. It's not up to a, a kind of set pattern or a combination that has tried and true uh, results. It's kind of an open book now. Mm -hmm. And right. you have to add the angle again of the media and the new media, because trying to sure. parse words, this is what people are doing every day around the clock, trying to make sense mm -hmm. of the yep. president's Tweets, tweets, right, and mm -hmm. uh, they're they're sometimes just incomprehensible. But there is a running of foreign policy, sure, right. and military <laughs> policy, and this opposition uh, war with the with the traditional media ongoing. And so you didn't have that when we were back in the Clinton administration, 92, 93, 94. Mm -hmm. um, you did miss a couple of W's on the typewriter, though. <laughs> well, we were still really relying on these very powerful speeches or the way, say, a sushi meeting mm -hmm. would play out in the press, and then that would become the narrative. That's all we really had. You also didn't have all these armchair journalists, these bloggers and everybody sort of weighing in, and certain words going viral. So right. in the case of Syria, whatever's next, uh, it could be a big step back mm -hmm. uh, from all the support that has been coming in for that strike, which right. came across as a very humanitarian intervention. But that could turn around very quickly and be seen as, no, this is U.S. aggression again. Right. How quickly we've forgotten about illegal immigration and <laughs> all the these wall, other, right. yeah, building the wall, a lot of the things that were promised during the campaign, and yet we're still just under 100 days in. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's right. for yeah, quite right. remarkable. It's only about 80 days, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing, too, the other element of uncertainty, I think, is just the fact that the president on his, I think, third day in office withdrew the United States from the TPP because there were 11 countries in the region that were hoping that the TPP would set some kind of architecture, some right. kind of framework for the United States to be engaged, at least economically, in Asia, and with some political and security implications. But since the administration, or since the president has withdrawn the U.S. from TPP, then people are saying, well, in the absence of TPP, you know, what, what, what is there? And actually, you know, I think Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and some other countries are saying, hey, let's go ahead without the United States. Let's mm -hmm. the 11 countries go ahead with this. 
But other than others, I think like Vietnam and, and Malaysia are saying, well, but without the United States, it really doesn't have the benefits that we'd like. So that is another element of uncertainty, I think. Mm -hmm. I think the Japanese are patient enough to wait for the United States to kind of pull hoping, this all together. Hoping, hoping. hoping that they pull <laughs> yeah. it all together. Right. right. <laughs> but there are some, some dark clouds that are, you know, just in our neighborhood and things could change very quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's right. You know, I think too, we need <clears throat> to talk more about countries beyond just whoever's the head of state at the time. So we've been very careful here not to reference who's at the top right. in the White House so that we can look at, well, what are what's going on in the United States amongst the American people? What is public opinion showing? Public opinion in Japan has been uh, a little bit wait and see about mm -hmm. this new administration. And there's been some surprise with all the turnover and new people coming on board. But still, there is a, a looking towards the United States to act as a global leader, sure. like it or not. Even if at the top, there is a downplaying of that. And that's that soft power. Even in economic relations, when you mentioned those countries that were saying without the U.S. and TPP, why go forward? Right. The U.S. is still driving this global train. Mm -hmm. And so... I think the more people who are involved in the story shaping about the U.S. role in the world, the better. Right. To, to just get away from all of this uh, hot rhetoric around a, a new administration, one person in particular. Right. <laughs> well, speaking about you know the public perception, the Abe administration, the prime minister himself, is enjoying a uptick in popularity, even in spite of the scandal with the Moritomo Gakuin school in, in Osaka. Uh, that seems to be calming down just a little bit, but even in spite of that, his his approval numbers seem to be jumping up. And and what is that about? I mean, do you think it has to do with Japan being more important now in this uh, new environment of 2017? Because Abe was so assertive early on uh, in terms of reaching out mm -hmm. to the new U.S. administration. So it sort of elevated Japan's role in the region and globally. And this is what Japan wants. It doesn't want the image, though, of being aggressive, but rather being strong economically and particularly culturally. And it's still going to have to deal with all of these international visitors. There's all mm -hmm. the tourism now to Japan. So people are coming and they're making impressions about Japan and they're going back to their respective countries. And so I think Abe is getting that credit for raising the the, the stakes here. Remember, Japan was somewhat forgotten. It was, right. And just a few years back, it was under, with Obama, it seemed like the focus was more on China. Mm -hmm. And well, so- Well, you know, I think it's true that um, stability is what actually gives a lot of the strength to Abe, because before he became prime minister, as we all know, there were six prime ministers, one in a row for over a six-year period. So just the fact that uh, he's been in office since uh, December of 2012, and, you know, I think Angela Merkel may be the only leader among the G7 who has uh, been in office longer than Abe. And so uh, he has a stability and he has the continuity and he has kind of the accumulation of personal relationships and so forth that comes with that. So I think that, um, and his, his uh, uh, apparent ability to deal with uh, the President of the United States, all of that, I think, um, has gone uh, as, as a credit to him, mm -hmm. as uh, to Abe. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that uh, in many respects, uh, uh, Abe is uh, riding high, in part 
because he doesn't really have any opponents, you know, mm-hmm. strong opponents within the LDP, and the opposition is in disarray. And uh, and because of the the length of, of office, and he's just gotten the LDP to you know ex- change the party rules so that um, there's he now three, three year terms as opposed to two three year terms. Right. So he could conceivably be in office until 2012. So he does have that uh, continuity right. uh, and longevity right. that uh, was lacking among uh, at least his six predecessors. Mm-hmm. Well, the typical tactic is if you can't get to the main guy, you go to his lieutenants. And we can see that going on with the attacks against some of the members of his cabinet. Mm-hmm. I don't know how successful that will be, but it looks like there is an accumulating uh, momentum for that kind of an attack because it seems like uh, the effort spent on attacking him or his wife has fallen pretty flat. Mm-hmm. Well, what about Inada, though? Mm-hmm. I mean, could she be the one who is the uh, sort of wrestled away from the LDP? Is she becoming too heavy in this... Uh, in the scandal in terms of the way that she's handled it, would she be replaced or would he keep her on? Because uh, I think her appeal to the the public at large is not very strong. It's not very strong, but the timing now is not very good either. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, With the the strike force of the USS uh, Carl Vincent coming into uh, the region, it looks like that things are triggered for action. And in that particular context, you know, the, the Japanese need to have their... There's stuff together, Minister too. of Defense. And yes. where is Vice President Mike Pence going when he visits? He's going to visit the USS Ronald Reagan. So that, too, is part of that story sure, sure. to the world, to show that strength. Mm-hmm. Peace through strength? No, that was Ronald <laughs> Reagan. But Well, the first member of the cabinet to visit Japan was the defense minister. Mm-hmm. Right. And he was followed up by the Secretary of State and then vice president. the Vice President. So it looks like Japan is high on the the agenda, and it looks like uh, things are just in flux right now, but developing towards, one would hope, a a firmer economic relationship. But it looks like, just judging from what we've discussed today, the military is probably going to be the anchor stone, and what will follow up will be the economic uh, aspect. But the thing is, the military is strong economic relations, isn't it? Look at look at how it impacts the economy in Japan and vice versa. So uh, without, and this was Ronald Reagan's argument to build up the military is to strengthen the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. So I, I see a parallel with Donald Trump. I don't know if you all do. Oops, I said Trump. <laughs> we were trying to avoid saying Trump yeah. this entire episode. Yeah, I, I actually don't I like... Lapsed. That's okay. I actually don't like the, the linking of the military presence and the military-industrial complex with the economic development. Mm-hmm. I think that the two are very separate, and I think the, there is much more potential in developing the economic aspects, the technology, um, uh, flow of, of, of people and, and goods, I think is a, a bigger bang for the buck than, than the military. But I think in this administration, yes, there's a lot of emphasis, especially um, given that the, uh, the budget increase for the military is, is so high. Plus, I think just with the situation in North Korea, that kind of necessitates uh, a focus on uh, you know, military cooperation between the U.S. and Japan, the U.S. and South Korea, and cooperation between the U.S. and China as well. And even at the uh, Xi Jinping summit, there was a reference to having more military exchanges. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't student exchanges, which Obama had emphasized between the U.S. and China, but rather having more 
staff, military staff on these mm -hmm. exchange programs. Okay, well, just to wrap up this segment then, right. what is your prediction for the next three months? Of what, what do you think is going to be the critical event or a critical event that's going to happen within the next three months? On the security side, I think the U.S.-Japan will continue cooperation, especially with regard to North Korea. On the economic side, we will see some new initiatives that the U.S. will offer to uh, propose to Japan uh, to try to rectify this uh, imbalance in the economic relationship that's been perceived by the president for many years. Now, uh, there's some, I suppose, possibility of something happening with North Korea, but that's really that's very a real difficult point. to uh, predict. Dr. Nancy Snow? Oh, I would say uh, I would see the rise in public diplomacy, a narrative coming out of the U.S. military, mm -hmm. and looking at uh, strength through the military as really helping to enhance global security as opposed to take it away. Right. But there will, there will still be a lot of protests against this rise in the military budget and this decline, not only in State Department, but in social services, social welfare programs. So the entire U.S. government infrastructure is getting deconstructed, to use Steve Bannon's right. words. And so th there's going to be a lot of rallying against that. And the mood in Washington will continue to be much lower in morale than, say, in Tokyo. Thank you. What are your predictions for what's going to happen in the next three months? There's a lot that's going on. There's a lot of uncertainty. Please keep watching and please stay tuned. We're going to continue to follow up on this.